Maple Grove, we made it. <laughs> Chapter 31 of the story has arrived. And, and, and it's it sure did take a while to finally get here, right? I, I mean, January 13th is a long way back. And, and listen, whether you were here when we started on this journey, that this journey through God's Word from Genesis to Revelation, or you joined us somewhere along the way, well, today we are all at the exact same place, uh, the final chapter. Hey, yesterday we get to see how the story, how God's story, how our story ends as we take a look at the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. So are you ready? Yeah. You ready? Awesome. Let, let's pray. Palms open uh, to receive from God. Heavenly Father, we, we humbly come into your presence. There is no one like you. Never has been and never will be. You're a great, mighty, and powerful God. You hold this world in the palm of your hands. You were, you are, you always will be. And, and God, we thank you uh, that you let us see the end of the story and how it all ends and that in the end we win. And, and God, I pray that this morning that you will just help me, God. You know, I, I know I feel the enemy trying to get in my head, Lord. And, and God, purify my motives, God. I, I don't want any glory, God. I pray that you get the glory. That your story gets the glory, that your son gets the glory, and that your people get excited about what is coming because of your son. And so, God, just be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, does anybody here watch any reality TV? I'm sure you do, right? And I tell you, my favorite types are the ones where, well, my favorite all time would be Extreme Home Makeover. I, I love that show. I mean, how can you not feel good after watching it, right? I mean, they come alongside a family that, that is going through hard times that most of the time is still in those hard times, and, and they give them a new home, and they give them a new hope. And, and the high point of the show is when they bring the family home uh, to see their home for the first time, and all that a huge crowd is gathering, cheering, and, and all that stands in the way of them and seeing their new home is what? Bus. It's a bus. And, and, and Ty Pennington will say, so, do you want to see your new home? They go, yeah, we do. Then you know what to say. Move that bus. Well, I, I, I want to show a brief clip of what that looked like for the, the Powell family. A, a single mom of four who immigrated to the U.S. from Jamaica, uh, working multiple jobs, she eventually was able to buy a home in her city of Buffalo for about $12,000. And, and when she got her home, not only did she care about her home, but she cared about the whole neighborhood. And tried to, she cut the grass and vacant houses and all this stuff. And however, she eventually found out that she was ripped off by the seller and they hid a lot of stuff from her and, and that things were not as she thought. It, in fact, her home was actually on a list to be demolished because there were just so many codes broken that they just had to tear the house down. Well, check out this clip right here. Tonight on a special two-hour episode. Good morning, Powell family! Since we started building homes, we've never taken on a project as ambitious as this one. I mean, this could be like more volunteers than I've seen anywhere. We can now call this Extreme Makeover Neighborhood Edition. This week, we're creating a movement in a city 
that we hope ripples across the entire nation. We want to be that catalyst that continues to inspire this neighborhood. We've got a record-breaking recording artist coming out to lend a hand. And a community activist to help a family push their neighborhood towards realizing the American dream. Eric, get on the bus, buddy. And the renovation starts right now. I've never seen that much positivity in my neighborhood. I felt like I was at a football game, you know, scoring. You know, everybody's out there cheering for you and had me deeply happy and joyful in my heart. Now, you remember, before we left, you talked to me about how you felt like you were trapped in that house, that it was like a cocoon you couldn't get out of. Well, I think what's behind this bus, taking that cocoon away, and you can finally spread your wings. Are you ready? Yes. Are you guys ready to see what's behind this bus? saw the house, I know there is hope, and it's standing right there in front of my eyes. My old house represents the cocoon that I've been trapped in, the struggle, the pain, the heartache, and my new house represents the butterfly that came out of that cocoon, that spread its wings, that fly, and is happy and gleeful and joyful. I realized that I was looking at the future for me and my family. If you guys love the house, do me a favor, give a big hug to David Stapleton and his whole crew from Damon Holmes. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I, I love that show, man. I can get teared up every time watching it. And the look on their faces. It's incredible, powerful, beautiful. And Maple Grove, you know what? I can't wait to see the same thing happen to you. When your heavenly father moves the bus and unveils to you for the very first time the home, the forever that he is right now at this very moment preparing for you as a Jesus follower. Now I'm not sure if there's gonna be an angel up in heaven, yet we can clap. And I'm not sure if there's going to be an angel up in heaven that's going to say, move that bus. <laughs> Maybe there is. But oh, the expression on our faces when you and I see it for the very first time. And listen, in that moment, every headache, every heartache, every hassle that we have faced in life will melt like ice on a July sidewalk. And it's all, every bit of it's going to be more than worth it. This is the promise 
of the book of Revelation. Uh, The promise that in the end, God wins. And that as his people, in the end, when all is said and done, that we win too. Amen. Uh, uh, The message of Revelation is that it's tough now. It's difficult now. It's challenging now. It's not fair now. There's hunger now. There's hurt now. There's heartache now. There's pain now. There's disease now. There's family breakups and conflict now. There's orphans now. There's sin now. There's evil now. But in the end, God wins. In the end, his followers, every single one of them wins. Yes, this is the promise of the book of Revelation. A promise that this desire that all of us have this desire to, uh, to, to live in a different place, to, to live in a better place, to live in a perfect home is exactly what's going to happen one day. Move that bus. And listen, wise and blessed are the followers of Jesus who reflect and meditate often on the central promise of the book of Revelation. And, now, I understand that for many of us, Revelation can be kind of scary and intimidating. In fact, of the 66 books in the Bible, the book of Revelation is probably the one book that sits near the top of both the most avoided list and the most abused list. You see, many people, we just kind of avoid it altogether because they're intimidated by it. I mean, it can be hard to understand. I mean... I mean, John throws out like a fire hose, all these images and numbers and and metaphor and beast. And it's like, wow, what's he talking about? I don't get it. And and then others abuse it as they press every detail and dissect every image, looking for some secret dates about future events coming in the world and drawing charts. And and understand, there's a really big danger, real danger when we approach the book of Revelation that way. It's the danger of, of... of counting raindrops and missing the beauty of the rainbow. It's it's the danger of focusing so intensely on the brushstrokes that we miss the beauty of the painting itself. This year, the staff and I had the opportunity to go to the North American Christian Convention. The theme was victorious. Uh, When life seems hopeless, read the end of the story, the message of Revelation. It was an amazing conference. It, it, It was without a doubt the best teaching Uh, preaching I've ever heard anywhere at any event. And and at the conference, I heard several powerful statements that that really spoke to the need that that you and I have to, you know, to to never lose sight of the main message of the book of Revelation. I I put three quotes in your notes. They're going to pop up on the screen. I really like these. Um, The book of Revelation is not a crystal ball about dates and predictions. Instead, it is a megaphone proclaiming the ultimate victory of God and his people. Amen. Revelation was not written to reveal secret dates on the calendar, but to encourage weary and struggling followers of Jesus Christ. And then the next, Revelation was not written so that you and I could make charts, but so that we could make choices. Choices that lead to both holiness and to hope. And again, I I think far too many people today, 
They miss the wonder and the beauty of the book of Revelation because they are too busy counting raindrops. And as a result, many times people leave the book of Revelation and not, not, not blessed and encouraged, but confused and many times fearful. And let me tell you, if you and I read the book of Revelation as a Jesus follower and we, lead it, we leave it being afraid, we've read it wrong. And if you don't want to believe me, take God's word for it, who says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, blessed, happy, content, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Uh, Mark Moore, in his, he wrote a great little devo. Um, there's only, it's out of print. There's about 17 copies left on Amazon.com. And I get no proceeds. It's a great book. And he, he writes this. It's so good. It's in your notes. Uh, Revelation is often approached as a calendar. Some look at it as a history book that describes the Roman persecution of the first century. Others believe it tells primarily of yet future events. Both try to pin each symbol to a date on the calendar. That creates a problem, however. If this book is primarily about the past, then it's not very motivating for us today. If it's primarily about the present, then it's largely irrelevant to John's original audience. Either way, most Christians throughout the history of the church who have applied revelation to themselves have been mostly wrong. But what if revelation is not viewed as a calendar but as a template? What if we are able to lay its principles over any period of suffering? Then most Christians throughout the history of the church who have applied revelation to themselves have been mostly right. This is not to say that John did not have a historical reality in mind when he wrote the book. It is to say, however, that like the prophecies of the Old Testament, there are principles and metaphors embedded in them that are contemporary and relevant for each generation. And he wraps it up this way. That's why this book has perpetual relevance. Wherever there is tragedy or suffering, persecuted Christians or rampant evil, this book weaves its way into the life of the church, reminding God's people of three things. Their security in Christ, the seriousness of spiritual warfare, and the wondrous sovereignty of our mighty God. That is awesome stuff. That makes so much sense to me. I, I, I understand that the, the, the people, you know, the audience that first heard this, the, the people that, that, that John told to, uh, to write this letter to, this revelation to, were a group of first century believers under siege by the Roman Empire. I mean, they were a persecuted minority, a, a little band of soldiers surrounded by a hostile enemy. And, and listen, when you, when you make an airdrop to your troops behind enemy lines, you don't send them crossword puzzles. You send them survival supplies, food and maps and equipment and weapons to help them survive, to help them get out alive. And that is exactly what John is doing in the message of Revelation. He's telling them and us, you know what, it's a tough world. It's a tough world you live in, and here's how you survive. Here's how you get out. I mean, can you imagine how the message and the promise of this book, in the end, God wins, encourage those who first heard it? You know, because I don't know if you knew this, but at the end of the first century, the persecution of Christians went to a new level. I mean, it was bad under Nero, uh, but under the Roman emperor, um, the mission, it, it went to new levels. This guy hated Christianity. He hated it. 
He saw it as a threat to the empire. He saw it as a threat to the worship of himself. And and his only goal was he wanted to, to, uh, when it came to the church, was to turn this movement into nothing more than a bloody smudge on the history books. Where at one time, Christians were occasionally uh, persecuted under him. It became official Roman policy. I mean, if you are a believer, your name was on the top of the hit list for the Roman Empire. And the Roman version of the FBI could hassle you, arrest you, even execute you. Yes, the Christians of the first century, the Roman Empire became the most dangerous place in the world. And I'm sure that for many in the church, it seemed at the time, you know what? It looks like the devil's winning. It looks like the dragon of, dragon of Rome is winning. It looks like all the things that are coming against us are going to overwhelm us and destroy us. It looks like we're about to be defeated and taken under by everything. You ever been in a place like that? Have you ever felt like all the things coming against you, all the things coming against the church will completely destroy it and take it down? I don't know about you, but I have. And maybe you're at that place today. And that's why we all need the message of Revelation, which tells us and shows us quite emphatically that things are not what they seem to be. It's that, it's that, lower, it's that lower and upper story thing we've been talking about since day one. You know the lower story, that, that six-foot six uh, horizontal view? It's the life in here now is how sometimes your life just stinks, right? I mean, sometimes it's just not good, right? You got conflict at home. You got physical problems, you know, and you got debt you can't pay. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's terrible. But over, above, and against the lower story is God's upper story. It's how there's a sovereign God who rules over people and nations and how God, no matter what has happened, God can take the jump, junk in my life and yours, the good things and the bad things, even our sinful choices, and begin to weave them all together for our good and for his purposes. Yes, it may seem at times as God's people that devastation and defeat are inevitable, unstoppable, and on our doorsteps, but that is not the case. Understand the book of Revelation reveals that, 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 that a day is coming when we're going to be rescued. You see, the Savior once again is going to enter the world. And, and this time, he's not going to come as a baby. He, he's going to come as a warrior. And this time, he's not going to come riding humbly on a donkey. He's going to come riding triumphantly on a white stallion. And he's going to come not to be delivered to the hands of his enemies, but to deliver you and I from the hands of our enemies. Maple Grove, when Christ returns, he will return in glory and be clothed with power. And all the earth will see him, and on his robe and thigh will be these words, King of kings and Lord of lords. And every knee in heaven and earth will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. And in that very moment, Jesus Christ will set us free from captivity. He'll release us from our circumstances, and he'll take us back with him to a brighter and better world. What a day that will be. This is good news. The exact news that the believers who first received the message needed to hear. I mean, the message of Revelation shot the spiritual adrenaline of hope and to the veins of their weary souls. They needed revelation. So do we. So do I. So do you. That's why Jesus showed up nearly 2,000 years ago on the island of Patmos. 
a barren rock 37 miles from the Roman mainland. It was the Roman version of Alcatraz, and no one escaped from Patmos. And he showed up there to give John a revelation. John was in his 80s, and he'd been exiled there. Why? Well, he tells us himself in Revelation 1-9, he's there, exiled at 90 on this barren rock because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And the book of Revelation begins with these five words, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word revelation means an unveiling. 2,000 years ago, God on the island of Patmos pulled back the curtain and he allowed John and you and I and the churches to see Jesus in all his glory and to see not just Jesus, but to see God's story that will never be stopped. Amen. And he asked John, he said, so John, tell me, do you want to see your new home? Do you want to see how, how this thing ends? John goes, I do. He goes, then you know what to say, John. Move that bus. Now, now, we don't have time to talk about all this book reveals. Uh, but our time remains, I, I want to talk about what, what I think are three of the biggest reveals. Let's move the bus. Real number one, Jesus is greater than we've ever imagined. Trust in him. In his book, Victorious, available at, I put it in your notes, collegepress.com, $4.00. 99 cents. It'll be the best five bucks you've ever spent. He writes this, too often the contemporary church suffers from a condition that someone dubbed JDD, Jesus Deficit Disorder. It's not that we don't think about Jesus, it's that we don't think big enough about Jesus. It's like we are seeing him through the wrong end of the telescope. He looks smaller than he, he really is. And I think, no, let me rephrase that. I think Matt nailed it. Our Jesus is way too small. Uh, a year or so ago, we, we did a series at, at the Grove called I, I Want to Know Christ. And, and we talk about this, this very habit we have of, of making Jesus so small, so small that he could actually fit into a box. And if you were at the Grove at the time, you may remember that, that I use a, a little action, Jesus action figure, you know, to illustrate this. But it really wasn't Jesus. It was an action figure of some WWF wrestler, but I made him look like Jesus. Anybody remember this guy? There he is. Oh, he's coming out of the box. Whoa, there he goes. That's a pretty good-looking Jesus. And like, Glendon Silver, like, ah! Okay? And, and uh, well, this week I went looking for that guy. You know, I'm looking in my drawer. I'm looking everywhere. I'm looking under papers. I go, wow, you know what? An image, right? Listen, my Jesus and your Jesus is so small that we got to go looking for him. He's way too small, all right? Way too small. He's not hiding under papers. And question, what happens when your Jesus is too small? Answer, churches like the ones in Revelation 2 and 3. Understand, as we read through the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and here, here, here's a little map should pop up. See the churches there, Smyrna, Ephesus, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You discover that there were two crises afflicting the churches there, both of which are direct... direct <clears throat> both of which are a direct result of Jesus being too small. The first is the crisis of familiarity. You see, Jesus, they made Jesus so small, they reduced him and diminished him so much that they were no longer left awestruck by him. You see, their Jesus was not fearsome or dangerous. He was just a nice guy to have around. Cut your lawn when you're on vacation. I mean, they're apparently not 
the least bit uncomfortable in his presence. Their Jesus was tame and safe. And listen, when, when, when you and I, when we tame and domesticate and declaw the line of Judah, when we, when we reduce him to nothing more than a household pet, then who in the world is going to stop you and I from living any way that we want? Now understand, a low, small, or diminished view of Jesus, Jesus leads to what? A diminished church. A low view of Jesus produces a low life for Jesus. And that's exactly what we see happening in the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And we'll see later that there's some messed up churches. They got some issues. Hypocrisy, sexual morality, false teaching, lukewarmness. I mean, what happened? How did it get that way? Answer, they lost sight of Jesus. They, they, they became so familiar with Jesus that they no longer saw Jesus as he really is. But Jesus takes care of that himself in Revelation chapter 1. John is having his own worship service on that barren rock, having a good time. And all of a sudden, a loud sound splits the air. And then John heard a, a deep thundering voice so powerful that John could actually feel it rumble in his chest. And that voice commanded him, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And when John turned to see the voice, you know what he saw? He saw Jesus with the bus removed. He saw Jesus in all his splendor and glory. When I turned to see him was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstand was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. This is the clothing of a king. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. The whiteness is not a sign of age or frailty, but of deity, dignity, and purity. And his eyes were like flames of fire. Piercing through all of our shams, all of our cover-ups, all of our pretending, piercing deep into our innermost selves. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, representing his strength and his stability. This Jesus will not trip. He will not stumble. He will not falter. He is solid, immovable. He stands firm. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand. Are you kidding me? And a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun. And all its brilliance. I understand that this is not this is not a Jesus in whose presence we can casually stand around. And, and, and what is John's reaction? John, the guy who was probably Jesus's best friend. Uh, John, the guy who leaned on Jesus at the Last Supper. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. I understand seeing Jesus and. All his power and glory, seeing Jesus with the bus removed, crashed over John, and it knocked him to his knees. I mean, John, Jesus' glory crashes over John like a mighty tsunami, and leaving John fighting for his breath. He is, he is stunned. He, he, he is breathless. He, he is speechless. He is terrified. No, this is not the gentle Jesus with children sitting on his lap. Instead, this Jesus speaks with volcanic thunder. He blazes bright with supernova brilliance. This Jesus is so huge that, that he could play kickball uh, with our planet. Uh, this Jesus could, 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 with no more than a flick of his finger, he could send our entire Milky Way galaxy spinning off into the distance. This Jesus holds the ocean in the palm of his hands. This Jesus is the same God of Genesis 1 who with just a, a few spoken words 
and syllables spoke the entire universe into existence and who with just another word could dissolve everything as if it never existed in the first place. This Jesus is before all things. This Jesus is over all things. And this Jesus holds all things together. He reigns. He is supreme. And he will tolerate no rivals. Understand for the churches in Asia Minor, believers immersed in sin and worldliness, the point is clear. Be warned. Jesus is not a kindly Mr. Rogers who winks at our sin and lets us live any way that we want to. Boys will just be boys. Instead, he is an all-consuming fire, a towering and furious figure that will not be managed. He is Lord. He is in the midst of his people. He knows our sin, and he's big enough to do something about it. Jesus' message to the churches, to me and to you, is the next time we're tempted to unholiness in our lifestyle, the next time we're tempted to laziness in our mission, Jesus says, behold who I really am. I am the mighty God. I was and I am and I always will be. I hold the world in my hand. They became too familiar with Jesus. What about us? What about our church? What about Maple Grove? What about me? What about you? Have we grown too familiar with Jesus? I mean, when we walked into the church this morning, did, did our pulse quicken? Did we catch our breath? Did our palms begin to sweat? And when, when you and I choose to do what we want, live any way we want, go against the kind of people God has called us to be, do we get at least a little bit nervous? We should. I should. I mean, we are in the presence of the most important and powerful being in the cosmos, none other than the sovereign king of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things. When our Jesus is too small, we face at least two crises. One is a crisis of familiarity. The other is the crisis of fear. See, while some of the churches in, in the book of Revelation were caught in sin and worldliness, others were, were taking a stand for Christ, and, and they were getting the snot beat out of them for it. They were losing their homes. They were losing their families. They were losing their lives. And the results, these persecuted believers had little strength left. Revelation 3.8. And they were afraid of what they were about to suffer. Revelation 2.10. And so Jesus' words to John at the end of Revelation chapter 1 are exactly what they needed to hear. You see, right after John falls to his knees, Jesus comes over and Jesus puts his right hand, his hand of power on John's shoulder, and he says this, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. You see, this great big Jesus, yeah, he's terrifying, but you know what? He's also very comforting. I understand to these suffering believers, this vision of Jesus reminds them that Jesus is bigger. Jesus is more powerful than any problem they will ever encounter. He is stronger than any enemy they will ever face. He is more powerful than any storm that will ever blow against them in this life. Yes, when they hear the words of John's, they take heart and they say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because Jesus, the great I am, Jesus, the mighty God, Jesus, the everlasting Father, Jesus 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus who calmed the waters, Jesus who raised the dead, Jesus who healed the lamb, Jesus who created everything and holds everything in his hands, Jesus is with me. And maybe that's the word you need to hear this morning. That no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, it's not a small, it's not a declawed, it's not a tame, it's not domesticated, it's not an in-the-box, flannel-board Jesus looking after you. No, it is the King of Kings, and it's the Lord of Lords. And yeah, I know. I, I know a Mr. Rogers type Jesus makes it a lot more convenient for us to sin and do what we want. On the other hand, he is not all that much help in a fight, is he? Move that bus. Jesus is greater than we ever imagined. Trust him. Next, Jesus is committed to his church. Listen to him. And I got I to blow fast through these points, and I just don't have time. And, you know, I decided this week that after Easter in 2014, we're going to do a, a series on Revelation. Yeah, we just need to do that. Uh, uh, but but, but did, did you notice where Jesus was standing when John saw him? He was standing among the seven lampstands. And Jesus tells a little later in John 2 that the seven lampstands are the churches. And you see, these struggling believers may have felt, you know what? Jesus doesn't see us. Jesus doesn't care. Jesus is nowhere around. Jesus doesn't know what we're going through. No, 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 no. Jesus is right there standing among you. Jesus is attention, and he's even going to write a letter to you, to talk to you. And, and, and we see in this letter, Jesus does, he does three things with his words. The first thing he does is he affirms the churches. He says, I, I know your situation. I, I see what you're going through. And I appreciate it. I see your hard work. I see your suffering. And I'm paying attention, and I notice. I mean, isn't that awesome to know that, that, that Jesus is paying attention, that, that he, he knows our situation, he knows what we're going through for him, and he applauds our effort for him? He says, you know what, I know it got tough. I know you're about ready to cash it in and quit. I know all the problems and things that came against you from situations and people, but, but you hung in there. You were steadfast. I saw it, and I appreciate what you're doing. He affirms the church with his words, and, and then he also, he, he confronts or warns the church, right? You see, five of the seven churches were pretty messed up. Uh, they had some issues, and, and Jesus says, you know, I have this against you. And he's not being mean. You know, don't, don't, don't mistake his directness, because Jesus is being very loving. He's showing his concern, because he still believes in them. He believes they can do better. It's tough love, but tough love is better than no love or fake love. A guy named Randy Posh writes, when you're screwing up and nobody says anything to you anymore, that means what? They're giving up on you, right? It ain't worth the bother. Just what? We're still worth the bother. And then Jesus points out five sin patterns that, that these churches dealt with. And do, do any sound familiar? Lost passion? Church in Ephesus has lost passion for the church? False teaching? Uh, Pergamon and Thyatira embraced false teaching that led to idol worship, sexual morality. Uh, both Pergamon and Thyatira had, had let sexual sin creep into the church in their lives, which is still, I think, one of his top weapons to destroy people in churches, right? 
you know, effective strategy, adultery, premarital sex, pornography, sexual abuse, uh, spiritual hypocrisy. It was in the church of Sardis. I mean, everybody thought they were spiritual alive, but these, these were like the kind of people who could curse out their family on Saturday night, slander a brother in the hallway on Sunday morning, and walk in here, I love you, Jesus. You're awesome and amazing. Materialism, the church in Laodicea was lukewarm because they were trying to break the universal law that you cannot serve him and money at the same time. And you know what? I'm confident these churches didn't plan on that happening. I think there was a time where they're more like Acts 2 than Revelation 2. I mean, I don't think they woke up one day and said, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to give in the false teaching. You know, I don't think they got married and said, you know what? I hope one day to be an adulterer. I, I don't think they left the baptism after surrendering Christ and said, you know, one day I really hope I can become lukewarm and hypocrite and be caught in the grip of materialism. But it happened then, it happened now. Why? Number one, because Jesus is too small. Number two, because no one spoke up. You see, you and I, have, we have blind spots and if there's not someone to speak into our life, and we got no hope, right? A wise man once said, we cannot become ourselves we cannot become ourselves by ourselves. And finally, Jesus encourages the churches in us. Number one, he encourages by saying you can repent. See, repent's a good thing, right? It means he hadn't given up on us, right? I mean, you know, we're always just repentance away from being back right with God. Just one God, I'm coming home to everything being better. And, and then he, he tells them, hey, you know what? He tells them and us, here's what you get if you overcome. He who overcomes will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. He who overcomes will wear the crown of life in heaven. He who overcomes will remain untouched uh, by the second death. He who overcomes will receive a new name given by, by Jesus himself. He who overcomes will eat some of heaven's hidden manna. I don't know what it tastes like, but I, I can't wait till I get to eat some. He who overcomes will be given the morning star. He who overcomes is going to wear white robes and, and, and they're going to walk with Jesus. He who overcomes hear their name spoken by Jesus in the presence of the Father. Who overcomes will be given a, a permanent place in the temple of God. Who overcomes will sit on Jesus' throne with him. Are you kidding me? I, I mean, do you think that encouraged anybody in the first century? Does it encourage you to know that what? Yeah, someday you're going to eat fruit from the tree of life. That, that someday you, 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 you're going to sit on the throne with Jesus. You're going to wear a white robe. You're going to eat some awesome hidden manna. Yeah. I don't know what it tastes like, but it's good. Uh, move that bus. Jesus is greater than we ever imagined. Trust him. Jesus is committed to the church. Listen to him. Listen to his words of affirmation this morning. Some of you need to be affirmed. Listen to his words of warning because some of you don't think it matters that you're lukewarm. Lukewarm means you're vomit, right? <laughs> you know, you're vomit. He's going to spit you out of your mouth. Some of you need to hear, hear the words of his encouragement. Look, hang in there because when you do, it's going to be worth it. One more reveal. God is always on the throne. Worship him. After this, I looked, and there before me was the door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, coming, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was the throne in heaven. And the cool thing about this throne is with somebody sitting on it, the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled 
the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lampstands were blazing. They are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. God is always on his throne. Worship him. You know, these early believers who first got this, they were going through hard times and, you know, maybe they didn't feel like worshiping. You know, we're going through a hard time. And we got a lot of questions and struggles. We need some answers, Jesus. Jesus says, no, not really. He says, first and foremost, you need to worship him who is on the throne. You see, there's a statement in your notes. It's so true. It's true for me. It's true for you. When you and I do, when, you, when we feel like worshiping the least, ever been there? Is when we need to worship the most, right? I can't worship God. You are right. Yeah, yeah, that's when you need to. That's when I need to. And when we do, we're going to see that at the center of the universe, our God sits on the throne. And our God is the one calling the shots. Rome isn't calling the shots. Washington isn't calling the shots. The evil one is not calling the shots. In worship, we see the throne. And we see the one who sits upon it. And in the wonder of his power and majesty, everything in life that comes and stands against us assumes its proper size. See, the worship in Revelation 4 declares... Be encouraged, church. Be encouraged, small, struggling, persecuted believers. And it declares, be warned, hardy Rome. Be warned, all those who stand against me and my people. And it declares, tremble with fear, Satan, and your host of darkness, because God is on his throne, and God reigns, and God is supreme, and God reigns, and God's people will be victorious. Amen. And throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, Jesus reveals, he says, you know what? Anything that comes against me, anything that comes against the people that I bought with blood, I don't care if it's a dragon, I don't care if it's a beast from the sea, I don't care if it's an ungodly government, I don't care if it's a seductive culture, I don't care if it's famine, I don't care if it's disease, I don't care if it's death in Hades itself, because they will be defeated by God and by his land. None can stand against him. None can stand against him. Every single thing that gets rolled out, don't be freaked out by it because God beats every single one of them. In the end, he stands. And it's not a contest. It's not a contest. It's a route. It's a route. It's a route. Amen. Amen. Move that bus. (laughs) Amen. Jesus is greater, and the little children will lead us, right? You tell us. You bring it. I'll tell you what, church. We don't get fired up with this. We've got a problem. Listen, Jesus is greater than you've ever imagined. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. And Jesus committed to his church. Listen to him. Listen to his affirmation. 
Listen to his warnings. Listen to his encouragement. And God is on his throne. Worship him. Missionary Gregor Fisher writes, what will he say when he shouts? Uh, the question took me by surprise. I've already found that West African Bible college students can, can ask some of the most penetrating questions about the most minute details in Scripture. Pastor, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says that Christ will descend with a loud shout. I would like to know what that command will be. I, I wanted to leave the question unanswered to tell them that we must not go past what Scriptures have revealed, but my mind wandered to an encounter I had earlier in the day with a refugee from my Liberian Civil War. The man, a high school principal, told me how he was apprehended by a two-man death squad. After several hours of terror, as, a man, as the men described how they would torture and kill him, he narrowly escaped. After hiding in the bush for two days, he was, able to find, he was able to find his family and escape to a neighboring country. The escape cost him dearly. Two of his children lost their lives. I also saw flashbacks of the beggars that I pass each morning on my way to the office. Every day I see how poverty destroys dignity, robs men of the best of what it means to be human, and sometimes substitutes the worst of what it means to be an animal. I'm haunted by vacant eyes of people who have lost hope. Pastor, you haven't given me an answer. What's he going to say? The question hadn't gone away. Enough, I said. He will shout enough when he returns. The student had a look of surprise on his face. What do you mean enough? Enough suffering. Enough starvation. Enough terror. Enough indignity. Enough lives trapped in hopelessness. Enough sickness. Enough heartache. Enough broken families. Enough addictions. Enough hate. Enough lies. Enough abuse. Enough death. One day Jesus will say, enough. I had enough. I had enough. Enough. John, in his revelation, says this about our new home. Move that bus. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 7, 16 and 17, and then Revelation 21, talking about New Jerusalem. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old earth things has passed away. And nothing impure will, will ever enter it, nor will anyone who, who does what is shameful or deceitful, but those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Linda's name got written there this morning. This. This is the message. This is the hope. This is the promise of the final chapter of the story. And I would like to close with this quote from C.S. Lewis from the final book in his Chronicle of Narnia series. I love it. All their life in this world had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, which every chapter is better than the one before. Now, I guess we're wrong. 
It really isn't the final chapter of the story. Guys, our life here is nothing but the title and the cover page. And when Jesus Christ comes back, that's when you and I begin chapter one of the great story that never ends, that no one has ever read, and where each chapter, each page, each paragraph, each sentence, each word gets better and better and better and better than the last. Amen. Praise Jesus. And would you stand and pray with me? Oh, Lord, we thank you. And God, all praise and honor and glory go to you, for you are worthy. And Jesus, we thank you because without you and without what you did, none of this is possible. You truly are the great I am. And Father, I pray that as we celebrate you right now and what you did, that we'll realize that, that you can bring heaven close and that death is a lie because you defeated it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.